Jacob and I just get shitty, chit chatty, chit. We get shitty. We'll get yeah, we'll get shitty and get chit chatty. I don't know what I was what I was going there. Hello and welcome to the Better the Bookshelf podcast, episode twenty five. This episode, we are talking about Jesmyn Ward's "Salvage the Bones." I am Ryan, and with me is my good buddy and fellow host, Jacob. Yes, hello and welcome to the Better the Bookshelf podcast, our little book club, book cold, book something or other, episode 25, a quarter century, a quarter, yeah, a quarter of the way through to our, I don't know, did we set a goal at 100 episodes? I feel like that's a reasonable goal. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I well, think I think we should set that now. We we'll haven't see, set all right, it before. A goal now of at least a hundred episodes done. We hope you can make it there with us. Uh, but yes, twenty five. Uh, it's going to be a good episode. This is our. I think this is our last one of our little kind of exploration to African American authors. Yeah, for now. For now, we obviously will uh, we'll get some more in later. But as far as making a concerted effort at this moment to get that in, this is going to be our last little one of that. But this yep. one, I think. I don't know because because Underground Railroad was was really good, but I think this one is going to kind of bring us back up on uh, on a little high note here. Because for those of you who tuned in last week, we were not <laughs> super high last episode. Excuse me, we we're not super high on Beloved, but I think this book's going to be a little bit different story. So traditional episode, yes, they've all been pretty traditional. We haven't strayed too much from it, but we're going to tell you a little bit about the author, Jasmine Ward, give you a very brief summary, and then we're just going to jump into the book, talk about the things that maybe stood out to us, popped out to us, whatever questions we have for each other, and uh, almost assuredly getting off topic as we were both kind of similarly aged to the uh, to the characters in this story right around the time that Katrina was coming through. So, yeah, I don't know, maybe an interesting Smidge Katrina older. story if you have something along those lines, but uh, was, yeah, just putting actually, you on just putting you on the spot like that right now at the beginning that. of the episode. So, and then of course, we'll get into our patented 3 tier 4 if we're giving it away, 5 if we're fighting it against another book and perhaps that <laughs> book would win. That's uh, not so great, but Yes, and then we'll tell you, obviously, what we have on shows coming up in the future. Yes, so now is the time where I tell you, if you haven't read the book, go read the book. That's what book club things are about, and that's kind of what we are. So go read the book, then come back and listen to the episode, because you're probably not going to have a clue what we're talking about if you haven't read this book. That being said... Let's jump into it. Let's do it. Jasmine Ward. Jasmine Ward. Uh, so she was, uh, she, she's from the Gulf Coast. Um, she's actually from, I think it's pronounced Delisle, Mississippi. Um, and, uh, you know, I think you see a lot of elements of, of her upbringing um, and her, like that community, that, that type of community in, in the book that, that we read. Uh, she went uh, to college and got a, uh, a bachelor in English and uh, a master's at Stanford um, and then, uh, she went on, uh, to, to go to, um, get her MFA at, uh, University of Michigan. Um, and then she's currently right now teaching at, uh, Tulane University. Okay. Um, and I sat down and, and, you know, looked at, uh, a few different interviews with, uh, with her, you know, this book won, um, a national book award for, for fiction, um, she was actually listed uh, in the 2018 Time 100 Most Influential People, like Time, the Time Magazine. Wow. Um, okay. Which, which you know, I, I thought was was really interesting. 
having read this, I, th- I think I, I can understand certainly why um, that would be the case. But, uh, you know, so the interesting thing about about her um, talking about this book, I was watching an interview, I think it was NPR, um, you know, the, she just really wanted to, to sort of breathe life into the the community um, that, that she was born into and, and, you know, her, her family and her friends and, and, uh, and all of that. Um, and that seems to be sort of her, her mission, um, in her writing, certainly I, I think achieved, achieved in this book. Um, but she was just, she, she was really down to earth in those, in those interviews, but, um, very, uh, articulate as, uh, I think you would, uh, you would expect of somebody who wrote something like this. So, um, super interesting. She, she has a few good ones out there. If, if you want to go, uh, check those out. You owe us a book summary now. Yeah. Very quick and dirty book summary. Uh, <laughs> the bones is the story of a small family in rural Mississippi on the Gulf coast in the events leading up to end the day after the arrival of hurricane Katrina. Ooh, I know that was kind of my thought whenever we're just jumping into it. That was the end of the summary. But I was going to summarize your summary, and I would just say it's a book about people and it rains. Exactly. But so, you know, whenever you first kind of presented this idea of this book to me, yeah, and it was kind of, oh, the background is, you know, it's, it's and granted, you hadn't read it yet, but the background being, you know, about Hurricane Katrina and kind of the experiences of, I went in with a little bit different expectation of, of necessarily what we got in the book and, and not okay. that it was a bad thing because uh, I think that mm-hmm. the way that Katrina kind of plays a role in the background of the story and it very much is in the background until we get to the end. Yep. Um, it is interesting as a reader uh, when you take sort of a real life event and you sort of inject sort of fiction elements into it and you kind of have that sort of previous knowledge of this event and so the whole time you kind of are just filled with the sense of dread and the sense of kind of like impending doom right on on you know our family that we're here with and you know Katrina really only takes up two chapters two chapters yeah. worth of actual the events thereof and and then we kind of get the aftermath a little bit thereafter right. but I mean to say that it's this is a, a story about Hurricane Katrina is really kind of minimalizing, you know, everything else that's happening because Katrina really isn't a overwhelming el- el- like element here. I think it's just more of a device of kind of further driving home that sort of situation. Yeah, that, it's that, definitely that everyone's in here. It's it's because we are very well like early on presented with this this situation that is, you know, Ash's reality and that is this family's sort of existence and it's, you know, this level of poverty, this level of sort of just, uh, you know, at a loss for kind of family direction. You know, you have the the kids that are kind of raising themselves and, you know, are sort of uh, lost in a way of, of trying to, to make it in their environment. And this is very much as an environment that is like super unfamiliar to, I imagine, you know, 90 plus percent of people that would pick up this book and think like, what? This is... You know, I, I I grew up not particularly well off or anything like that, but just the the type of environment that you're presented here in this book and that I'm sure, you know, stems from a lot of the reality of like the level of poverty and the level of, you know, situations that you see within communities in this area. It's it is crazy. It is it is very 
you know, you're immediately presented with it like right off the bat. And it's one of those things that's that can be kind of tough to wrap your head around. Yeah, actually, it's it's funny that you that you mentioned that, because when I was when I was looking up um, stuff about her, um, her like little snippet in the Time 100 uh, list was written by um, Lee Daniels. And uh, the, the snippet, the entire thing says, uh, Jesmyn captures the African-American experience with authenticity and nuance. She is a modern-day William Faulkner, painting tapestries of an America that has not been heard. And I, I just thought, I read that after I finished the book, and I thought, well, damn, that just really nails it. Like, yeah. I mean, you, you do walk away um, with such an impression of, you know, something that you've you've seen, um, but never, you know, experienced. And and I say that because, you know, I think I think about uh, when, where we went to school in Nacogdoches. Yeah. And, um, you know, the town proper is, you know, just sort of your normal small town. I mean, it's the college makes up most of the population there. But, you know, you get a couple minutes, literally a couple minutes outside of town. Um, and then, you know, even further, you know, you do see, you know, trailer park, you know, uh, or sorry, trailers like in the woods that, you know, could have been the, the setting of this book. Um, you know, there are people with just stuff piled, you know, in, in front of their houses along the highways and, uh, you know, just trying to sell sell junk. And, you know, I just remember making that drive from like Nacogdoches to Lufkin and, uh, you know, you'd see all that stuff. And I wonder, I always wonder, like, what is what are things like for them like day to day? So it was it was super fascinating to yeah. to get that like that perspective of something that I just sort of always wondered and never I guess had the occasion to to know somebody and and to like be intimate with um with that sort of impoverished lifestyle. Well yeah, cuz I feel like, you know, and not to be cliché or anything at all and you know, you say there's like two Americas, right? There's the the group of people with the haves and the have-nots, but mm-hmm. you know, I I think that's very simple and and sort of dividing it is that you obviously have sort of different um communities based around kind of like like what you have you know you have this community in here that they're all similarly in the same station in life in the same position very impoverished kind of making do with what they have and seemingly don't really interact at all with with people of other sort of communities and, and other situations and so yeah you do see it a lot if you're kind of you know, raised in a in relatively well off within the middle class or even, you know, higher up than that doesn't exist to you. It's not something it's something you can be told. And even in something like this, you can read it and you can go, yeah, I know that 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 exists and that there are people at that level of, of poverty and that there are people that have that degree of struggle in their life and people that, you know, seemingly put up with these circumstances because they really have no other option and that the decisions they have to make and the choices they have to make are very much sort of completely backwards to how you would anticipate a lot of things in your own life because you do have opportunities and you do have other things that exist that allow you to not have to necessarily worry about your immediate survival day in and day out. And yeah. It's just, that's just, you know, it's one of the things that that it, it struck me in this book very early on because it's one of those things you think of kind of in a historical context. Oh, you know, people used to be so impoverished, you know, back right, in the day sure. they lived. And the reality of it is, is there are places in this country where they would be completely unrecognizable to you as though it were 2018 or 2019 because of that 
of that level of isolation, whether geographical, whether socially, whether economically. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's, man, that coupled with, you know, that a story in and of itself, which is kind of what we get in here. You know, we get sort of a an episodic story within that family unit. And I like to use the word episodic as opposed to more of a kind of linear traditional plot. But but before we move too far away from, from the, from the poverty aspect of it, I definitely got that, um, you know, that element throughout. But the thing that struck me more than anything was how similar, um, you know, my experiences, you know, with, you know, family and uh, just school and community and friends and, and that sort of thing are, despite the, you know, sure. the very different circumstances, but the way of going about living within those things, yeah. you know, didn't strike me as foreign or, you know, odd. Um, you well, know, yeah, I mean, it, the, the actions that the actions that we see, like everyone take, and especially, I think for me, especially like Skeeta and just sort yeah. of like doing what he can for China and trying to preserve the pups and, you know, with the intent to try to better the situation for Randall and for, you know, Ash and the family and. Yeah, and even just yeah, interactions between them and and everyone it did. Like it's obviously relatable because there are elements I guess in family dynamic and in sort of community dynamic that's universal because you know, it's just kind of hardwired into our fabric of our being as human beings, but it's it is interesting to see itself kind of manifest in instances that you're not accustomed to or that you're not expecting at all with the primary thing for me being the whole sort of dogfighting element within the story. Yeah. So you want to, you want to touch on the, on the dogfighting? Well, I have, I, I have thoughts. I came in, you know, for me, uh, I've said it before, you know, I think it's important to, to kind of consume things that are uncomfortable and, you know, dogfighting is not something that I'm particularly like comfortable with. I think it's a practice in and of itself. That's pretty, um, abhorrent, but at the same time, um, I, I understand that morality can be viewed through a lens of, you know, relativity, uh, based yeah. on kind of your standing and your stature in life and based on your circumstances and situations. So, you know, I'm a guy who likes eating meat. So to somebody, <laughs> I mean, to some people out there, their view, their yeah. moral stances, I'm no worse than people that would torture animals or fight animals. Right. And so there is a bit of relativity there. Um, not that I'm saying, you know, oh, well, it's it's fine. But yeah, it was one of those things that it's kind of you're just approached with it. And it just is there's no questioning the the morality of it. There's no questioning kind of the justification for it. It's just sort of a part of their lives already. Yeah. And, you know, that's tough to relate to again, because I understand that 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 dogfighting, you know, as a, as an activity is predominantly found within like these poor communities, these people that are, that, you know, that's, that's a way, that's a means of trying to, you know, make money or to try to better, you know, I mean, we even see it with Skeeta to try to get money to better off your family, like to, to provide for your family. And at the end of the day, you know, I understand in those circumstances why you would take those steps to do that. Sure. But at the same time, it's just, yeah, it is It is one of those things that you kind of encounter and you go, oh, okay, cool. <laughs> like, that's something that's in this book. Yeah, you know, I, I, I read a, uh, an article, like, years ago now, and I, I couldn't, couldn't point you in the right direction, but somebody did a, uh, a study about, um, like, people's reaction to, like, animals and humans getting, like, injured in movies and stuff. Yeah. And, like, the 
the number one thing is like dogs getting sure. getting injured even before humans before horses like you know the the typical kind of uh things you you you'd see in a movie um so i had that sort of just knee jerk reaction to the whole dog fighting thing especially the the scene where there actually is is dog fighting yeah. um but the one thing that i think that ward does extremely well in this book is that um I didn't find myself forming a bad opinion of of Skeeta or anybody um because of the dog fighting. So she she has this narrative style um through Esh's, you know, voice that does make the whole sort of thing disarming and yeah. accepting in a way. And I and I got to to thinking about it after the after the book was done and I was like that's weird. Like I didn't get up in arms. Like, you know, they're, they're fighting dogs. Whereas, you're still, yeah. You're still sympathetic to, yeah. to like Skeeta, especially at the end when he goes back and he's trying to find China and all this, it's, you're still incredibly sympathetic towards the, that character, despite the fact that the whole background for everything is he wants to sell these dogs off so that they can be, you know, in fighting. Yeah. And I, I think, I think the way that she achieved that, um, as I got to sort of thinking about it was by, you know, making it very clear that not only does does Skeeta care for her, you know, above and beyond every everyone else, um, for the most part, uh, but it's it's reciprocal. Um, yeah. you know, he's the only one that can touch the puppies, um, you know, without without having an issue. Um, you know, she waits for his command when none of the other dogs do for their, for their owners, um, you know, at the dog fights. So, you know, I think it's these little elements of their relationship to each other that make that whole thing sort of acceptable in the confines of, of the narrative, which I found myself to be surprising. Yeah. I mean, you're a, you're a dog owner. You're a, a lover of dogs and yeah, it doesn't necessarily surprise me the, the sort of reaction that people would have towards seeing dogs or other animals or human beings were very, you know, as I feel like the, the genuine, like caring about, you know, people's well being very rarely extends beyond kind of people's social and or like familial periphery. Sure. Work environment, you know, strangers, you can have, uh, empathy, but if you saw, you know, uh, you know, I've even seen like people's reaction if they see, you know, a homeless person on the street. Right. Versus like a stray dog, <laughs> you know, yeah. the reactions are incredibly different. And I think a lot of that stems from just the, the, the human dog sort of like psychoanalytical relation or, you know, this historical relationship that's kind of been built up over, you know, centuries now of, you know, just loyalty and the bond that, even if you don't like, even I know people that don't have dogs that are still, you know, there are very few people that are still just like, Ooh, get dogs away from me. Yeah. I don't want them, you know, some of them for allergy reasons or just maybe they grew up in a house that never had dogs or never had pets or anything like that. But I don't know. I love dogs. Yeah. It's, it's funny. Like, you know, we are, we have a German shepherd and, and he's, he's starting to get a little old and, you know, we're worried about like stairs and stuff now. Cause, uh, you know, he wakes up a little stiff in the morning, uh, you yeah. know, with his, his back legs and stuff. And, um, you know, even like I'll take him on, on walks and things and he, and he loves like kids. He loves everybody, um, you know, and, and other dogs too. And, uh, but I always get worried on walks because, 
I had I had my beagle get attacked in college, and yeah. Uh, so even though he is probably capable of ripping apart another dog, uh, pretty handily just by his size and breed, uh, I still just have this like inherent fear um, and like protection, uh, you know, s- sort of instinct uh, when it comes to him, and I, I think that that is like everybody's reaction to dogs, right? Is like. Yeah we're supposed to take care of them, you know, almost kind of like children, but it expands to like all of society in a way that, uh, I think is, is really interesting. Um, so the, the whole like dog fighting thing, um, you, you had made a comment, you know, or before the show about how Skeeta is kind of the, the driver of, of all of the action. Well, yeah, I think that, had we not had the story been told in a more traditional sort of third person way, uh, I don't think Ash is the main character in her own story. I think that because we get that uh, all of this internal thoughts and feelings and and all of this through her eyes, then obviously she is our our you know our protagonist, and everything that we see from everybody else is is interpreted through her eyes. But really, when you look at sort of the movement in the story, and everything that's going on prior to the hurricane, Skeeta is your, he's your primary mover. He is your, your main character in a sense of the, the driving force behind the things that are happening in the story. Yeah. And you know, a lot of that comes from, well, not a lot of it, pretty much the entirety of it comes from his desire to, okay, we have these puppies. I've got to, you know, make sure that China's okay. I've got to make sure that these puppies, we try to get as many of them to survive as possible. You know, one's got parvo, you know, now she's sick. We need to go steal this dewormer. We've got to go get all this uh, supplies. All right. Now we have this fight that kind of leads to this confrontation about the puppies again, like who should, who should be in ownership of the puppies. So yeah, I mean, as 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 strange as it is to have as kind of the primary driver yeah like the dog fighting element of the story is essentially the the only real kind of linear plot yeah from a from a standpoint of like constant sort of churn in that way right other than that and i mentioned it previously each day kind of feels it like it feels kind of more episodic as you know, we know yeah. that we're building towards something. We know that we're building towards the hurricane and we're building towards kind of each character's arc. You know, we, we, we know we're building to something with Ash's confrontation with Manny eventually, whenever she tells him or, or just sort of her confrontation with her family, whenever she sort of tells about that and sort of her own thoughts and feelings and how that's kind of mirroring or mirroring sort of her, uh, as she sees like China and her situation and when yeah. she thinks about mythology and then, we kind of get a little bit of Randall situation and, and then uh, daddy though, not so much. We, we, we don't get as much of a linear progression there until he kind of, you know, cuts his, <laughs> cuts some of his hand off, yeah, but yeah, cuts most of his hand yeah. off. What was your thought? I mean, like that was the one thing that kind of jumped out to me and I know we're, we're sort of changing gears here, but yeah, with, with Skeeta being essentially from an action standpoint, I think the protagonist in the book and just sort of the, the nature of, kind of how the plot develops until we get to the hurricane. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think you're absolutely right. And I think that the, the sort of almost character motivation of that is that Esh is still trying to hide that she's pregnant throughout most of this. Right. So, you know, who knows what, what she is normally like, you know, day to day, but she's in a situation now where she's just trying to keep her head down and sort through 
you know, what's happened to her, try to get Manny's attention just in the wider scheme of life. Um, and, you know, so I, th- I think, uh, I think again, Ward just does a really good job of, um, not making, making it feel like, um, like Esh is just watching other people. Like she's got her own thing going on. And, you know, I, I think a, a very compelling, um, situation that she's, she herself has, has to sort out. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, I mean, if it's, if it was 12 days of her pondering or 10 days of her pondering her pregnancy and then, you know, a hurricane hits, it would be, uh, it would be quite a different book. Yeah. I, I, I think. Um, and you know, we really don't get that much of, of Randall either. I mean, you, you get, you know, sort of the elements, um, where, you know, he's a factor the, the basketball game and the, and the fight and, you know, they're, there's obviously uh, during the hurricane him carrying Junior around, and he's kind of really the father figure throughout um, throughout the book. And I, you know, I think that that the the daddy's absence is intentional. I mean, he's he's an alcoholic, right? Yeah. And if you just you sort of get uh, you get the impression that these kids have been left to their own devices. Yeah, I mean, it's just kind of your traditional sort of detached, depressed, alcoholic. Uh, figure that's seemingly just retreated into into non-existence as a means of coping with you know the loss of their mother and just I guess the whole situation at large yeah and I I think man that's there's a there's a whole bunch of things that she weaves you know throughout this entire book but um the the whole theme of of you know motherhood um, is, is throughout, right? The, the kids, um, have the absence of, of their mom. Um, obviously you have, you have China as a mother and then, um, Ash as, you know, a a mother now. Um, and not to get too much into that, that concept, but, um, you know, their mom is even a character almost just as much as, as the father is, um, really up until the events of, of the hurricane, because they're constantly sort of, um, you know, hearkening back to, you know, well, you know, mother taught us to, to hunt for, for eggs. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah. and that's a good point, you know, junior, uh, never learned that. And, um, there was, uh, there was a line, um, and, uh, there was a line in there after the, after father lost his fingers, and uh, Ash is, is wondering if daddy will feel his missing fingers the way we feel mama present in the absence. Um, and I thought that was that was such a such an interesting way of saying things um, or thinking about things because she does. Ash does, doesn't have anybody to go to with the with the pregnancy, with the with any need need to learn how to be a mother right she sure. she ostensibly she's surrounded didn't have by men. one yeah um, and you see that that's you know a lot of the the i guess the problems and you know the like super early sort of sexual activity and kind of just giving in to this situation because of the fact that she doesn't have that person in her life like that yeah, yeah. it was it's it's not only is that little thought i think really compelling um but I, I think it really does sort of explain the, the the character of of the mother throughout the book. It's really the absence of her um, that is that is kind of glaring. There's nobody really kind of holding the the house together and you know 
coordinating things and, and organizing things, you know, uh, daddy tries until, until he loses his fingers and, and he can't. Um, but you know, with really no, no real success. Yeah. Um, one thing we haven't talked about yes. that I know we talked a little bit about previously, well, on previous books that may or may not be named, but also <laughs> beloved. Uh, yeah. Also in the show, we, you know, we, we kind of talked a little bit about style in this book. Yeah. Now you and I went into this book with a little bit, a little bit different ways because we'd both read beloved. Yeah. And then I had taken a little break a couple of days. Well, like about a week uh, before I started reading this book after that. And so I went straight from one to the other. You read something in between quickly that kind of, I guess, gave you more of a stylistic reset. Because I will say that early on in the book, um, not that it was necessarily fair to this work, but I started kind of getting that sense of a little bit, you know, one of the one of the hangups we had with Beloved was kind of the the stylistic choices and maybe the the descriptive choices. And in this book, a lot you get a lot. You know, you're if you've got to sort of imagine just wringing out a rag, you're just getting every little bit out of a description or out of a situation that you can possibly can, especially when you're talking about Ash's feelings and and sort of her internal thoughts. And at first, like coming into this, I was like, oh boy, all right, this is going to be, this is going to be a rough go of it because it's kind of in the same vein as Beloved where we're potentially letting style overtake kind of the, the story that you're telling and you're letting these sort of similes and metaphors and all these things sort of become more important than their cohesion and, and their importance in the storytelling. Um, but it never really got that. It, it never really got to that point. A lot of yeah. that was just me sort of like uh, being on, I guess, high Projecting alert your, and yeah. overly aware of that. Um, because I do think, and we talked about this a little bit before, there is a, a much, much, much greater degree of coherence as far as, or, or congruity, not coherence, yeah. but congruity as far as the, the way that this uh, descriptive style is used, especially when, when we're talking about Esh's inner monologue and inner thoughts and all of this. And so it was never, it was never a situation where it got in the way of me, like taking in the story and understanding the story and reading it and enjoying it like it did in, in beloved. So I will say that, you know, I tried my best definitely like early on to try to separate my mind from that whole, uh, yeah, that whole previous situation, and uh, you know, had I had I maybe read a book in between and completely cleared, it wouldn't have been an issue at all. Because you know, you get to the end of the book and you go, oh, okay, cool. Like, I think that overall, like when you take it in overall, the the mix of the way that the way that Jasmine uses, I mean, like descriptors, like even the passage when you're talking about there with the the absence, much like with the the fingers with Daddy, it's just it's used very well as far as like elaborating on this, on this imagery, like mm -hmm. the, the imagery that you get, especially when you get Ash's inner thoughts, it's done superbly. And it actually doesn't sort of detract from your ability to sort of trudge through or, or to get through like it did, you know, in beloved. So yeah. I don't know. That was just my, you know, cause again, I, you know, going from one to the other, I had that immediate hang up, but I know you kind of cleansed the palate and we were talking a little bit about this earlier and you yep. never had, you didn't have any issue with, with that at all. It was never something that even popped in your brain. And so, yeah, I, I, I mean, I just, I jumped to a totally different like subject matter. Yeah. Um, it jumping back to my reading about Nazi Germany and always uh, fun. Yeah. I've, I've, one day I'll be done reading about it. One I'm, I'm day. sure, but it's just, this is just where I'm at in life. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I, uh, 
I didn't have the, the the same sort of reaction because what I what I tend to do is you know I I tend to just try to like move on to to the next thing with a clean palette. Now there have been books that um, I will carry over like some exhaustion from. And, you know, and, and so like, I, as I recall, um, what did we we read right after Blood Meridian? Um, I can't, I thought we read Sedaris after Blood Meridian. It might've been it. I I just remember like, so what, what happens to me when I read books is I just, I, I either like read slower or, you know, I just, I, I procrastinate and, uh, and don't read, um, as soon as we, you know, figure out what book we're doing or, you know, as yeah. soon as we get the episode recorded and I'm mentally like clear to Oh no, we read Bluebird Bluebird after Blood Meridian. That's right. That's right. Thankfully that was that was a a pretty quick read and was highly enjoyable. So Absolutely. That, uh that I didn't I didn't go through the entire book, but um you know, one thing that when when you mentioned kind of carrying carrying baggage um the one thing I was really afraid of was the allusion to, to Greek mythology. Yeah. I read years ago, um, the book is uh, Middlesex by Jeffrey Eugenides. Yeah. And uh, I read it I read it in college. So, I mean, shit, 10 years ago at this point, maybe more. And the, the Greek... Definitely myth- more. <laughs> the, the Greek mythology... Yeah, I guess it is. Damn it. Uh, the yeah. Greek mythology in, in that and, and the like metaphors and stuff are just so heavy. And when we started getting these, these injections um, of uh, the Jason and, and Medea, I was like, Oh my God, please don't like, don't be too heavy handed with, with the mythology because it just does. It doesn't resonate with me as, as a person one, yeah. because I'm uneducated uh, in, in that regard. So I think I'm, a lot of the nuances missed on me intellectually. Um, but also, I I have a hard time sometimes uh, liking books that borrow like heavily like elements from other stories in like explicit ways, right? Yeah. Um, like I like implications when you borrow maybe plot devices or or you know just even an, an overall like narrative arc. Yeah. Uh, but when you start like expressing these things like very clearly that, you know, they're going to be part of it. Uh, I start getting nervous and I, that made me nervous because of that book <laughs> that I read a long time ago, which isn't a bad book, by the way. Yeah. Um, it was, it was a dense read. Uh, but I like, I like Eugenides. Um, that was just a, uh, it was, it was a dense book for a lot of reasons. Um, did you have any any thoughts or feelings about the mythology or the way that she presented any of that as you, as you read it? I mean, I thought it was interesting. I too, I was not. I'm not as familiar on on uh, like Jason and the Argonauts and Medea and Euripides, but I went back and and read a little bit about it just to kind of get some context outside of you know what we're told in the book. Although we do get a lot of actual yeah. of actual relating to the situation within the book. Um, but uh, no, I, I wasn't necessarily hung up on that. I will say it was interesting though, because not to not to you know put our our not to put our protagonist in a box or anything, but it did seem like an interesting uh, thing to be uh, interested in outside of like your situation. Yeah, to be interested in in Greek mythology of all things. But I thought it was really cool, and I thought it was um, 
I don't know. I, I thought that the, again, the whole internal sort of mentality and, and thoughts and dialogue and, and all of that of Asher, what really kind of add that. And I, I don't say this in a, in a derogatory way because I know we say things are literary or, you know, yeah. and sometimes that can lean towards the, you know, overly sort of superfluous and, and flowery, but whatever. But you do get a lot of the, the real kind of like literary meat of how this book is written through that, that sort of, that frame of, of sort of Esh's internal monologue. And yeah. the thing is though, is I think it's done, I think it's done really well and it's, it's, it's really interesting and it gives life again, it gives life to this character that otherwise you wouldn't really be able to see from sort of a third person. You know, she's not, she's not doing things, you know, particularly as, as, as Skeeta is where it's like, I'm doing this and I'm expressing why I'm doing this and I'm doing right. this. She's a lot more guarded, a lot more hidden because her own situation is very personal. It's very controversial maybe within her family and, you know, didn't seem to be, well, yeah, you know, but it's the whole thought of like, well, okay, well, what are they going to do to Manny or what, right, this, yeah. you know, that's that those potential or, you know, even her own situation with, with Manny. So you don't get a lot you don't get a lot from the actions of Ash until later in the book, whenever, you know, she does confront Manny. So it's the primary driving force behind our understanding of our main character. And it's done well enough that you really do get invested in her. And so, I mean, I think that's the biggest compliment I can give is that I'm invested in a character within the story because that's a huge for me. That's, that's a huge tie to like actually caring about a story is, is finding a character to be invested in. And you're deeply invested in Ash in this story. For sure. And, you know, I, I think it's interesting, too. So if if you take the mythology piece and then you put it up against, you know, Ash and, and her family, mm-hmm. you know, so Medea kills her brother and chops him up in, in bits and pieces to delay her father's pursuit of her and Jason. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, she forsakes her family, um, you know, for for her love. And. That is not what Esh does. Right. Um, not that I, I think that that was ever really like a choice, right? Like Manny was just flat out disinterested, yeah. right? And, you know, unsurprising. Manny, Manny was just a douche. Yeah. I mean, unsurprising given the way that he is explained as a character. Yeah. Um, you know, from the way that she describes the, how they have sex. Um to, you know, not looking her in the eyes to yeah. the fact that he ignores her, you know, when when he's with this other girl and uh, and treats her in a very different manner, which she's obviously, you know, envious of and and desires. So th- th- there wasn't the same choice necessarily yeah. um, to, to be made there. Um, but it's it's interesting to see, you know, kind of the almost the inverse in in a way that you know, her, her brothers and, uh, and big Henry at the end, you know, just sort of like envelop her and just say, you know, he, he, big Henry even makes the comment have, that you've got, you've got plenty of daddies yeah, plenty or of father got, figures. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so it's, it's almost like she, like the narrative is almost turned on its, on its head in, yeah. in, in, in a, in a way. Um, that, you know, Jason is the one that's, that's fleeing and, you know, Medea, uh, is in, in pursuit and, you know, her, her brother and father just sort of grab her and say, no, you, you know, that you're fine where you are. Yeah. Um, so I, I thought that that was, that was interesting. And I, th- I think that the injection of the mythology, you know, tells you a, a lot about, um, 
you know, her as, as an individual, you know, she doesn't have to say that, that she's, um, intelligent or, um, you know, cares about, uh, about the wider world in, in the way that, you know, the rest of her, her family, um, doesn't necessarily appear to, right? Like they're, they're all very invested in, uh, in the life that they have. Um, you have your book open. Do you have? Is there? Is it just open? To oh, a I was just part. No, I was part? just. I was reading the little excerpt again. Whenever we had the kind okay. of back to back. Whenever China has the the second puppy that she had sort of struck out against. Meanwhile, you have kind of Daddy and and Randall with his with his fingers. I, I wasn't anything in particular. I was pulling out. It was just. I remember that was an interesting little bit. That oh, did you have a bookmark I had, as well? I had one thing in this entire book. Oh, bookmark. Well, you I, told me I, I wasn't. I wasn't going to read it like uh, verbatim, but. but was it kind of the same area? Because that was, I thought, a really good. That was a that was a moment in the book. Obviously, it's not like a climax, but we get a lot of movement within one specific part of the book here. With you know, kind of the the issue now sort of compounding with China and the puppies, uh, and then obviously with daddy and the and the and the tractor and i just thought that that whole passage that whole where they were kind of written simultaneously is happening at the same time really really good i really I, really i good. had the same the same exact impression um it it is one of the most freaking brilliant like ways of of projecting like the chaos and the uncertainty yeah. of both of those situations Absolutely. And, and you would think that like having these very like climatic events happening at the same time would diminish like the, the impact of them. But I think it does the exact opposite. It's almost like, you know, like uh, sound waves coming together in unison and, and, you know, increasing the amplitude of the wave. Like, yeah. Whoa, it, settle down there. Sorry. Bro, yeah. Jesus no, metaphors, man. Uh, but I, I think that, you couldn't do those things, you know, separately and have the same sort of effect. Absolutely not. And and the back and forth felt very like cinematic in a way. Um, and I just, yeah, that, that was one of the, one of the places that the book really like stopped me down. And, and I was like, this is, this yeah. is great. This yeah. is just fantastic. It, it, it like dragged. Yeah. It like everything just kind of like slowed down. And you're like just sort of pouring through the little bit that's happening in the back and forth of it. But yeah, that was the one that was probably the one moment in the book that I that most stood out to me as far as just the the choices made with with, I guess, telling this narrative. And that just I don't know, I couldn't have done it any better. I couldn't have asked for it to be done any better. And so that to me was one of the one of if not the best part in the book for from a just enjoying how the story's being told. Absolutely. One of the one of the things that I was sort of anticipating in, you know, you, you know, at, at some point her pregnancy is going to be exposed. Right. Sure. Yeah. And I didn't expect it to be like as they're like trying to climb, you know, to the to the other house, like in the middle of the hurricane. Yeah. Um, were were you surprised by the fact that Skeeta knew he observed and, and had it figured out? Um, without her, you know, saying anything. And then daddy's reaction, you know, after the fact where, you know, he wasn't mad. He wasn't, uh, I, I kind of expected some element of, um, disappointment or shame and that wasn't there. Did, did you, 
Did that strike you as odd, or did, did did you have a different expectation? No, not really. I mean, the Skeeta thing didn't strike me as odd because it, it did feel like throughout the entirety of the story, like Skeeta and Ash are the two closest yeah. as far as so. And he seemed relatively, I mean, he seemed very observant and at least kind of caring for her and, and, and things like that, you know, that he would recognize. The daddy one did kind of catch me off guard because, you know, he seems so disinterested and, and sort of absent throughout the entirety of the story. But, you know, whether it's a combination of, um, you know, the situation they're in with the hurricane, the situation that they're in just as a family and just with this, you know, seeing now his only daughter kind of, I don't know, maybe that sort of illumination that he had from, you know, his wife being yeah. pregnant with his kids. And, you know, I can understand how a lot of that can can come together emotionally in a way that maybe you don't expect or that maybe, you know, you could see in a more positive light. It's like, you know, well, if the worst thing that happens today is you're telling me you're pregnant while well, we're trying to escape these, you know, yeah. hurricane, yeah. Uh, this like tidal pool uh, that, you know, has the potential to kill us all, then, you know, that's not so bad in in retrospect. That might have been the best time for, for him to find out, to be honest. So, yeah, true. Uh Pro- probably That's why you always you always you always lead off with something to to soften the blow right well at yeah. least we're not at, you know we're not dead in this hurricane but i am pregnant yeah i remember trying to deliver bad news to my parents you know when i was younger and and yeah you always try to do like you soften the blow f- yeah you try to find the right time they're in a really good mood or something something bad has already happened yeah to where it's it you know they can't yell anymore they're yeah. just going to be like ah whatever um, so one thing, I, I don't know if, if you know this, but, but, uh, Jesmond was actually in Hurricane Katrina. Well, I had, cause again, I'd seen a brief, she didn't do all that many interviews, I think on this book, or yeah. I, I couldn't find as many as I had previously when I'm looking at a more recently published book, but I did see some, yeah, where she had had an experience with Katrina and again, kind of in the same similar fashion or maybe not the exact same fashion, but within the same relative area, kind of Gulf coast of Mississippi. Yeah, and I, I thought that was that was such an interesting element to to the book, and you know, uh, per my usual, I you know try not to do a lot of like research about the the writer if I don't know them or you know the circumstances you know in which they they wrote it. But after learning that you know she grew up in in a similar type of community and you know went through a similar experience, you know, I th- I think um, it kind of made sense to me then you know, why, you know, she was able to, to weave something this, this powerful together and, yeah. and build, you know, the, the characters, the way that, that she did. Um, but at the same time, uh, it, it, you know, kind of, kind of made me respect her for even sort of attempting those, those things, because, you know, anytime you write about something that's, that's deeply personal, or, you know, even talk about something, you know, that, that is, that is very close to you, especially yeah. the, you know, your family and, and the people around you, that's, that's a very difficult thing to do. Not only because, you know, it requires you to, to really like boil down, you know, what, what is my family about? What is this person about? What is my community about? Um, but ostensibly those people are going to read or hear, you know, what you have to say about those yeah. things. And, um, you're opening yourself up there for sure. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's definitely, um, I, you know, I, I think it's a courageous thing to do. Um, and I, I think that 
she she does the, the way that she goes about and and tells the story um is you know th- there's there's no pity um there there's no element of um you know where where you're just you're, you're sort of like um you're made to feel bad um about anything that's that's happening it's it's it is what it is well yeah it's it's factual but but it's there's you have an emotional connection to the situation and the people that, sure. that, you know, sort of bring that community to you. And I thought it was, it's just such a well-written book in that regard. Um, I was, I was, I was surprised by that. I, th- I think anytime, you know, you, you read books about situations that are not a, your own times that are not your own, there is some sort of like indoctrination that you have to go through in your mind to sort of you know find common threads, and I I, I never yeah. found myself having to to do that in this book because huh. of the way she wrote it, which I think is is fantastic. Um, I had one th- one last thing I wanted to touch on. Okay, if, I don't know if you had anything. I just had a. I just wondered if I know that I think that was your first year in college, right? When when Katrina had hit. Yeah. So. I mean, we're not obviously n- neither of us experienced the the actual aftermath or the actual destruction of Katrina. But regionally speaking, we're both relatively close. I mean, Texas, you know, we've had our fair share of hurricanes and as most recently as Harvey. But, yeah, I remember, you know, I was a high schooler, so I was around their same age in Katrina. And, you know, I don't remember or I guess I was just not as observant to the the like sheer destructive force. All I remember is just the insane amount because a lot of you know us being in texas and and dallas especially i don't know how much uh, nacogdoches at the time was but dallas was a huge huge uh hub where a lot of refugees from the gulf coast and predominantly from new orleans had come and i just remember you know it was at the very beginning of the school year and i remember some of my classes we had you know 11 12 people that we had added to it just kind of out of nowhere and it was i don't know man it was it was crazy because it was it was one of those things like as a school, you know, you didn't really know. I don't know. You didn't really know what to expect. It's all of a sudden you just have like 200 new people here and it's, you know, they've been through this horrible traumatic sort of experience. Most of them at least yeah. where they could have potentially, you know, lost their homes and lost family members and all this thing. And man, you know, it, it's, it's, it is crazy. The, uh, the whole background of the, the sort of natural disaster. And even though, you know, I personally, you know, I've been in, uh, I was in NAC and we had a couple of hurricanes come through and it was nothing crazy, nothing, you know, we had power knocked out and trees and stuff down, but nothing like category five or super destructive. Um, although Rita was, were you in, were you in Nacogdoches whenever Rita came through? That was that same year, wasn't it? Uh, yeah. So Rita was like, uh, was like two weeks before, uh, or a week before Katrina. No, it would have been that after. Was... You K, sure? K then R. It's the naming protocol. Oh, yeah. You're yeah, right. because you're Katr- right. you're Rita right. was, it was like, okay, well, now they've kind of gotten it cleaned up a little bit, and then Rita came through and hit kind of the, the same area in the Gulf Coast. But I don't know. You were a little bit closer. Was there anything uh, anything interesting about your experience with Katrina? Um, No. So, so yeah, when when, when I lived in, in NAC, um, the... It was like the beginning of the school year too. Yeah. Um, I remember Rita coming through, um, 
And I remember that more because there was uh, we had some some wind shear and there was a tornado that came through. Town, well, and it was knocked know, down the Shipley Donut sign. Yeah. Well, Katrina also happened at like the end of August, so there's a good yeah. chance that you might not have been like in NAC yet. And then Rita would have been later that year in September, October. Yeah, it was, it was mid September. So, um, that was my first time. You know, Dallas, you you don't really get anything you just get rain sometimes yeah and and, you know clouds and whatever um so that was my only experience like with the uh with the actual hurricane stuff but what i remember most about katrina living in nacogdoches was the like influx of of people that came in yeah and i remember that like somebody had gotten shot outside of a, a grocery store um so you they were trying to to rob people um, they had to bring in like state police, um, to like bolster the, the police force because, you know, the, the city is what 50,000 people, yeah, you know, that. with, that includes a college that's like, you know, 70% of that. Um, so I remember there were a lot of state troopers, you know, up and down, you know, main street and stuff, uh, to kind of help with that. And, and, uh, you know, I, just, I, I remember that there were just a lot, there was more like saturation of people. You go to Walmart, um, to buy food and, and Walmart is busy. They're sold out of things that, you know, you normally would have would have had there. Um, and I remember people being pretty freaked out about Rita after, you know, the after everything with with Katrina. Sure. Um, and I, I do remember that. Matter of fact, um, <laughs> uh, I, I lived in the towers there on on campus. Steen. Yeah. yeah. And uh, we we threw a. a through a hurricane party, uh, and uh, I slept through the tornado siren. Uh, we were supposed to go downstairs, like in the middle of the hurricane, because because of our uh, our hurricane party. So, yeah, um, that's th- those those are my memories of of that thing. I do remember Ike that came through um, toward toward the end of my time there, and yeah, that was when we were living together. You almost well, you tried to fight me that evening. I I did. That yeah. was a funny. That was we should. Uh, we should tell that story because you brought it up. So now I need to defend my honor. Um, That's fine. You so, know, as a, as an older man now, I can definitely understand your rationale for being upset at the situation. But I, at the time I, I was that. just, a, I was just a young man in college wanting to have fun. So uh, at the time I was, I was dating, I was dating a girl. I was at her apartment. You and I had a house together with, with a few other, a few other people. I wrote out the, the hurricane at her apartment and the, the power got knocked out on on our part of town and and was pretty was much universally across town, yeah, but was it completely was out. out. Yeah, so like the we left had to leave the window open. And the thing about hurricanes and the the thing that she tr- I think she tries to describe in this book, but doesn't really capture. I mean, it's it's so hard to like to experience this unless you've been there, but. The wind doesn't stop. It's it's not like a thunderstorm yeah. where it blows and then, you know, it, it stops and there's a break. The wind keeps going and it is like it is exhausting. Yeah. And the, the power goes out. You have to open the window, you know, yeah. because everything it's starts the summer up. in East Texas. Right. Yeah. The 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 rain is coming in sideways. So you can only crack it a smidge. And if you do that, the wind is constant. The wind is blowing under the window and it's whistling and you can't sleep and it's super humid and it's just it's misery. And that's, so that's what I remember about, about Ike. And then, so the power was out, uh, the hurricane had, had come through, knocked down a bunch of stuff, um, you know, around the city. Um, but at our house, 
we had we had power. Well, it came back on. We we thankfully were right across the street from uh, a major. It was I can't remember if they were telecommunications or yeah. like satellite, but it was a major uh, plant or company there. So we were sharing a grid with them. So I'm assuming we were on a relatively higher priority uh, power restoration because again. All around us, neighborhoods still black, but our 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 power came on that evening, and so you know us being stupid college kids thought, oh, let's get everybody that we know over here, and let's uh, let's have a party at this house. Yeah, and so I find out that there's power on at my house, and I'm like, amazing! I have an air conditioning, and probably a couple days at that point. Um, and, uh, or at least a day haven't slept because you know, there was, it was a category one, I think when it hit us and, and that was, that it was, was pretty, a one or a two. Yeah. I it, mean, it was still substantial. And, uh, so I was just exhausted. I had it in my mind. I'm going to walk through the door. I'm going to go to my bedroom in the back of the house next to the biggest room in there. And I'm just going to go fucking sleep. Like that's, that's what I had in my brain. So I walk home and the house is filling with people. And unfortunately for Jacob, the first person that I saw, and I don't, I like, I'm not a fighter. I like, I, it's absurd. But the first person I saw was you, and I was just like stewing, and I I don't even remember what I what I said. So but I, I know was I tried the, to. Pick I was a in fight. the living room, <laughs> and you come up to me, and I'm already about four or five beers deep because we've been so earlier in the day. We went out and helped clean up around because you know we we're like, man, we're just gonna sit here, or we we loaded up some trucks and shovels and went and tried to help people clean out their yards and move branches and stuff like that while we kind of waited for power to come on, and so we had finally come back from that. And uh, we were drinking a little bit, so I was already a little bit deep at that point. And you come steaming in through the room, and you're just rightfully so upset that that we had decided to throw a party without consulting you. Although I had made note that, well, four out of the five yeah. were yeah. here <laughs> and agreed that this is what we're going to do. So we technically had majority. Yeah, uh, You didn't necessarily see it that way, and we're, and we're trying to, to fight me. But I was more concerned at the time because we had just moved into this place. Uh, you were like batting at my hands and I had a beer and I was like, no, we can't get the carpet dirty. Oh my God. Little did I know, you know, three years later, God, that place should have been condemned, but you know, we can't get the carpet dirty. And why are you trying to punch me? I'm sorry. It's happening though. We can't do anything about it now. There are people here. Yeah. Enjoy it. As, as you came around, I was going to say as, as as I had a couple beers and came around. That's, that's usually the, the way to, to mend things, but yeah, those those are my uh, my hurricane memories. Yeah, um, so not quite <laughs> making a little bit light in comparison to the book, but yeah, for sure. And l- yeah, <laughs> we we have not experienced anything near near that like but, level. But of, the, the thing of destruction. is, yeah, but like I mean, Rita, Rita more so just because it was on kind of the tales of Katrina, and you've seen Harvey yeah. the last year. But like regionally, like these hurricanes. If you live like, you know, even in Dallas where we're not affected by it, we know countless people that were affected that had homes ruined by Harvey. We know people that have had homes ruined all over the place. And it's there are these just like catastrophic life altering sort of events that, you know, it's so hard, even if you directly haven't been influenced by it or directly affected by it. Like, you know, people that have or, you know, the stories that have of it. And so it is, you know, at the core of it, you know. Again, it's not super present in the book until we get to the end, but it's kind of that, like, you know, oh, it's that dark cloud that's hanging over the story because we know what's going to happen because we have this, like, you know, knowledge, this cursory knowledge of, of Katrina and all that, that, you know, it's, I don't know, it, the way it's done in the book, it's really good. It, it, it makes for this kind of, like, ominous backdrop, and you're always kind of 
in suspense regardless of whatever whatever is going on day to day because you know what is going to happen you know the like sheer destruction and things that are sort of on the way and i don't know i think that makes for good uh i think that makes for the like constant tension that constant build up and that really kind of kept me through to the end and i thought especially at the end whenever we get into the actual hurricane hitting and them just you know their efforts to escape and getting out of there that was another point in the book that was just kind of like very you know, you're sort of white knuckled there, yeah, getting yeah. getting through. But now, Skeeto goes into the water with like uh, even after the fact. Yeah, when things die down to go after China, you're you're just thinking we're never going to see him again. Like yeah. he's just going to disappear. Yeah, man. There's there's a lot of stuff that uh, that we just cannot cover in this episode. But um, I think we we did our darndest. Yeah, you didn't have anything else. Uh, I had, I had one other thing, but I think I can, I can work it into my, my book summary, my, oh, okay, uh, cool. my rating. So well, then let's get into it. Well, then you can go first it. with your rating. I'll waste no time. Top shelf. I think it's one of the best books that, that we've read. Um, one of the things that I think is, is most impressive about this book is that, you know, it weaves in a very literary style of writing with an amount of precision and brevity that makes the book highly enjoyable and easy to read. I blew through this this book oh, so fast. And that's one of my favorite things is when you can combine all of those things together, like just gets my brain boiling when I'm when I'm done cuz I just, you know, this is a book that you can just continue to ruminate on. Something that I think, you know, easy to go back and, and pick up um, on a weekend and, and read again and and probably get a lot more out of it than uh, than I did this this time around even. So top shelf for me, no no hesitation. Uh yeah, and I mean continuing the uh, continuing the tradition of the podcast, sans a few books, we're going to be pretty close to agreeance here. I'm also going to put it on the top shelf. Very good book, almost a universal recommendation for me. Very invested in the characters. Again, echoing what you said in your sentiment, just a very not easy read, but a quick read. Like yeah, you can yeah. you can find yourself just sort of diving into it and getting through it, you know, very quickly and. And with that being said, you know, definitely a candidate for a reread very soon. So, yeah, top shelf for me as well. You know, one one thing that surprised me is, I mean, won the National Book Award, which is sure. which is nothing to to rub your nose at by by any means. But I'm a little bit surprised that this was not um, this was not put up for any other big awards that that I saw in in my research and. I, oh, I, well, yeah, what I had seen too is like when this book had come out, there wasn't really a whole lot of critical noise about it. There wasn't a whole lot of, you know, reviewer or main, you know, mainstream national news about it or, right. or anything about it. And then, you know, all of a sudden it kind of gets into this conversation with the na- na- like National Book Award finalists and all of a sudden it starts picking up a little steam. And then after it wins the award, all of a sudden now it's like, oh, yeah, how did we sleep on this? Like this was yeah. a fantastic book. So, I mean, maybe... That's why it's not so surprising to me that it wasn't necessarily up for a lot of awards. This one might have just snuck in under the radar, but uh, you know, certainly deserving of its uh, of its award. It's a very good book for sure. And if you like this, um, you can pick up her uh, her latest book that came out in 2017 uh, called "Sing Unburied Sing." Um, that also won a National Book Award, uh, which is just astounding to have you know back to back books. Um, and then she had a, uh, I think this was a, it was a, uh, autobiography or a memoir called the men we reaped. Yeah. Um, and that is, is also, um, pretty acclaimed. So, uh, yeah, good, good little book. What do we got next? What do we got next? So 
I've been wanting to do this for a little bit, but we kind of wanted to get into the new year and uh, especially kind of do our little bit uh, here in February. And uh, I wanted to get back to a couple of authors that we had read previously, um, one that we both had a very positive reaction to the book, one that we were kind of split on, mm-hmm. um, both prolific in their in their fields. And uh, so I'm going to go ahead and announce my next two books. And I know that you've got yes. one in between. Yep. Uh, but the next book that we're going to read, we're going back to our our friend from across the pond, Ian Banks. We're going to read The Wasp Factory. I, this is this is a double duty for us. We're yep. going back and we're, this is going to be our first reread of an author. And two, it's going to be our first attempt at science fiction, you know, since the the Asimov incident. We're going <laughs> to we're going to jump into science fiction. I know that the Underground Railroad won a science fiction award, but come on, that's not science fiction. It was it was it was fantasy. Yeah. And it was I mean, it was a great book nonetheless, but it didn't really qualify in my mind as science fiction. Yeah. Wasp Factory Ian Banks, that's the next episode. Science fiction, I'm excited about that. Yes. Then what do you have to split us up? Uh, so then in between, we're going to have a a really big departure from everything that, that we have done. Fancy. And this is, this is going to be kind of a, a two-part thing. So um, I've talked about it before, but um, I mainly write poetry. All the stuff that I've had published is, is um, poetry. So I thought, why not read some poetry. Not only that, I've wanted to, since we started doing this podcast, find ways to integrate, um, lesser known writers, um, into, into the podcast from time to time. Um, not only, you know, to, to hopefully help them out, get, get some exposure. Um, but also to just, to show everybody, you know, that, yeah, we, we read these, these books that have won national book awards and Pulitzers and all of this. Um, but there is a lot of stuff out there that never makes these lists. All that said, we are going to be reading Christina Thatcher's, um, poetry collection, uh, more than you were. And, uh, it's, it's a poetry collection that is, uh, about her, her, the passing of her father and, uh, and, it's just sort of steeped in, in that experience and grief, family dynamics and, and all of that kind of stuff. But we're going to do a poetry collection. I, I knew the day was going to come eventually. I know you're a, you're a poetry man. Yes. Um, and so I knew that the day was going to come eventually. We'd do a poetry collection on here. And I'm glad it's you that suggested it first. Cause there's a couple that popped up in my mind. That yeah. I kind of wanted to cut you off at the pass, but uh, no, this will be good. I'm excited. And, and, as the second part to that. So okay. we're going to have a normal episode. We'll talk about her poetry collection. Okay. Then um, I'm going to be at a writing conference uh, in Portland. She is also going to be there. So we're carving out some time to just sit down and do like an interview with her and just chat with her about, you know, poetry in general. And then, Fantastic. you know, obviously her stuff um, and uh, and just some some subjects related to, to poetry. Sure. So that'll be... That'll be a nice little uh, treat. A little yeah. additional you know, unscheduled, a little additional episode for us. Yeah. Uh, and then you have the, the book after that, which you've already selected. Yeah. And then the book after that, again, double dipping into uh, writers we've previously uh, read and it's going to be Philip Roth. We weren't, uh, we, we were kind of, this is one of the, the only books where we were split. I think you yes. put it top shelf and I donated it. So yes. we were, we were miles apart on yep. this book. And I admittedly said a lot of that was because of my preconceptions of what the story was going to be going in and not necessarily the writing itself. So I'm going to give Mr. Roth another chance and we're going to be reading every man by Philip Roth afterwards. So 
should be an interesting book. Uh, Excellent. Very, might resonate with us a little bit more due to the fact that we're both rapidly approaching middle age. And I just want to bring that up now. You a little bit more rapidly than me, but... Come on now. I'm like three years, two years older than you. Yeah, rapidly. Rapidly, rapidly approaching middle age. So, uh, you know, it'll be, it'll be an interesting little read. Maybe not the most... Uh, <laughs> life-fulfilling and uplifting read, but certainly an interesting and thought-provoking read. Okay, so next episode, Ian Banks. The following episode is going to be Christina Thatcher's More Than You Were. Then the episode after that will be Everyman by Philip Roth. Thank you for listening to this episode, and until next time. <laughs>